0: This is the Politics and More podcast. I'm
1: David Remnick. Um, If I wear a Stacey Abrams shirt in the airport, black men, black women will be like, where'd you get that thing from to this date? And I'll buy it off of you right now.
0: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, and this is Marcus Farrell, a political organizer in
1: Atlanta. We're not going to increase the, the turnout of black women by... 20 points because Black women already vote at the highest rate. Obama won because Black men, Latino brothers, finally voted at high rates.
0: Farrell has worked with the New Georgia Project, which is leading voter registration drives in the state, and he says that the most untapped voting block is Black men.
1: When I go and talk to Black men, uh, they are not impressed with the current talking point that candidates are providing them. Um the things that candidates are very comfortable talking about aren't the things that black men care about at all, right? So we want health care. That, that might be great, but there's no one having conversations about keeping black men out of jail. There's no one having conversations about increasing trade work so African-American men can get jobs and be healthy, beneficial parts of society. So it's a different thing to say, I believe in Medicare for all. But if you can go to a black man and say, I believe in Medicare for all, and this is why it's going to help you, black man, then that's a different conversation. But no one wants to have that conversation. Everybody wants to talk in Iowa speak. Iowa speak is generalized conversations to 41-year-old white women to make them like you and make them feel safe that you're going to be a good pick for president. Even the media and even the press and even the posters go to people who are already going to vote. But you don't win with likely voters. You win with turnout voters. And turnout people just want to hear, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to help my life? How are you going to help me feed my babies? How are you going to help me work one job and be able to pay all of my bills? How are you going to create a living wage? How are you going to stop gentrification in my neighborhood? Because I'm getting taxed out of my grandma's house right now, right? That's what voters who are unlikely and the unlikely voters are the reason that we were going to win. So some of the most impressive things have been Tom Steyer running uh, ads or, uh, in, in South Carolina speaking about reparations. That's one of the reasons why Tom Steyer uh, went up in the polls, because there are candidates that talk to black men. I just don't think that the candidates that talk to black men have a chance.
0: Marcus Farrell. A political organizer in Atlanta. As Farrell pointed out, the last time a Democrat won the White House, he had enormous support from black voters. And this year, with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker out of the race, the four white frontrunners may really struggle to get the turnout they need. I called up Jelani Cobb to talk about the black vote in the 2020 election. Jelani is a staff writer and a historian, and I reached him in his office at Columbia University. In the State of the Union Address, it seemed to me that among the many (laughs) dramas and themes, race played a central role. On the one hand, you had Donald Trump um, gesturing toward any number of people of color in the the audience, including a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, At the same time, he awarded the Medal of Freedom, the highest award a civilian can get, to Rush Limbaugh, whose record of racist statements is extremely long. What was the motivation in racial terms and in electoral terms uh, of this strategy that clearly uh, was animating the State of the Union address?
2: Yeah, I think that it was a really interesting spectacle. There was a kind of tokenization of African-Americans who could be against recognizing a Tuskegee airman, Uh, particularly a a man who is over 100 years old and still looks like, you know, he could uh, report for duty (laughs) tomorrow morning if if need be. Uh, And so uh, there's a kind of gross, ham-fisted showcasing of black people. It's a more refined version, I think, than what we've seen before, because if you remember... Uh, the Trump of the 2016 campaign era when he was literally saying, look at my African-American.
0: Right, here. I have d- I have Don uh, King.
2: Yes, exactly. You know, I have d- Don King and Kanye. What else do I need? It was a deeply cynical moment. And, you know, maybe we should be accustomed to that. Maybe, you know, cynicism is the, the native language that Trump speaks in. But I think that w- what struck me about the State of the Union was that he seems to be speaking it more fluently.
0: Well, exactly. And it, it It seems to me that it's all about the campaign. He knows he's not going to win the black vote, so-called black vote. He's not going to win the Hispanic vote. But if he can raise the percentages just a bit in a very, very close election, that might be decisive.
2: I think that's absolutely right. And if you think about the statement he made in 2016, we said, you know, what do you have to lose? Uh, Well, you know, people who are looking at public policy would say a great deal you know Trump was a beneficiary in 2016 of a perception uh, among you know a fairly sizable part of the African American electorate that there wasn't that much difference uh, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and i think that what we're seeing is laying the groundwork for raising those same sort of cynical perspectives about whoever to will wind up being the nominee uh, you know later on this year on the democratic side and depending upon who he's talking about, that could be an effective strategy, You know, especially given the way we've seen race and history and civil rights and people's personal backgrounds on these issues become a subject on the, in the Democratic debates and now in the Democratic primaries.
0: We, we just heard from Marcus Farrell, who's been doing work to engage with black voters, and he paints a picture of a huge disconnect between the issues that Democrats are talking about and the issues that are important to the black community. Do you see a disconnect there?
2: Sure. And and so I think what's happened has been uh, a kind of big tent idea with the Democratic Party uh, and the concern that the tent has gotten so big that the roof is now sagging. And what I mean by that is, do you want to go all in uh, on the issues that are most concerning to African Americans, and potentially turn off the uh, elusive, ever sought after working class white voter. And so I think there, there is a disconnect. Uh, but what's interesting is Bernie Sanders, in that he has gone with a very kind of old school, almost old left form of economic populism, and had a surprising degree of of effectiveness in luring African American voters. He's now, I mean, he's light years behind uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden has about 48% of African-Americans supporting him, and uh, Bernie Sanders only has about 20%. But that's still impressive, you know, given that he's really one of the people who kind of prioritizes the uh, interests of the the working class and people who've been left behind and so on, and is now more accustomed to making appeals specifically to the issues that affect African-Americans. But that's, far from a language, I think, that he speaks naturally.
0: Sanders' 2016 campaign was often criticized for its failure to reach out to black voters. Did you agree with that criticism, and has he fixed it in 2020? He seems to be getting quite a few um, African-American voters who are younger, while Biden seems to be drawing from an older population.
2: Bernie Sanders has one of the more interesting developments and political evolutions. In 2016, his really poor showing among African-Americans, especially African-Americans in the South, was uh, attributed to all sorts of things. There was even a question about whether there was an an aspect of anti-Semitism in people's disregard for him or their their disinterest in him. You don't hear any of that now. It's fairly remarkable that he has 20 percent. In South Carolina, his numbers are about that as well. Um, you know, somewhere in the, in the 20% range, he benefits from having uh, some fairly high profile African Americans who were supportive of him. You know, if we kind of think back to Cornel West and his constant critiques of Barack Obama, uh, he is right there, you know, next to, to Bernie Sanders, um, you know, for the whole way of his campaign. And also, in 2016, he was, his events were disrupted twice. By Black Lives Matter uh, protesters, this year he has significant numbers of people who are young grassroots activists uh, who are like right there campaigning for him.
0: Now, is Joe Biden's appeal to the African American community so far ninety-five percent of it stardust from his relationship to Barack Obama?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's probably sixty percent uh, stardust from Barack Obama and. 40% uh, the idea that he is the type of person that other voters, namely white voters, might be inclined to vote for over Donald Trump. Uh, and so it's the kind of uh, electability argument over once again. Uh, and I think that it's interesting to see how this is playing as well, because it is uh, very much contingent upon results. Uh, If we thought about Barack Obama, he surged in popularity in South Carolina and surged in popularity among African-Americans in South Carolina after he won Iowa because he had essentially proved to black voters that white voters were willing to vote for him so he wouldn't be a wasted vote. I think that, in a way, Joe Biden faces the opposite problem that his African-American support may begin to erode if there are significant suspicions that yeah. maybe he isn't as popular with the kind of Joe Lunchbucket white guy as black voters would perceive him to be.
0: Now, Pete Buttigieg came out of the Iowa caucuses in a pretty strong position, but he's got very little support among black voters so far, particularly in South Carolina. Why is that?
2: I... Pete Buttigieg speak at Morehouse College in Atlanta. And, you know, Morehouse College, very well-known, historically black uh, college for men. And he laid out his case and got kind of like golf applause at the end (laughs) of it. And um, it was interesting. I said, you know, I was watching, I said, I think that there's a cultural difference here, which is he's a Midwestern guy and he was talking at a Southern college I was like, I don't think he would have fared well with Southern white people, because he was very reserved in that sense. And people expect you to have a little bit more of your personality, a little bit more of who you are on the surface. But that's just the kind of superficial part of it. Much more substantively, I think, is the concerns of African-Americans in South Bend. Uh, I have a rule about politics which is to never trust someone who's more popular away from home than they are at home. <laughs> African Americans in South Bend are very critical of them, particularly around issues of policing. If, we, if he winds up being the nominee, you can expect the Republican Party to make a lot of references to South Bend. You can expect there to be commercials from PACs featuring disgruntled black people who were uh, in the city when he was mayor. And I think that would be an all-out assault while they're going uh, full tilt talking about what they've done for criminal justice reform on the Republican side.
0: Now, Jelani, we started out the primary race with several pretty high-profile candidates of color, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Julian Castro, and they're all gone. Um, and you've got Deval Patrick, who's in the race, but not so as you'd notice. Um, he's polling at below 1%. I, why hasn't he caught on? And how has the race been changed by the fact that these other candidates of color have dropped out?
2: Yeah, I think that there's a problem with that, um, a visibility problem. And, you know, it, it doesn't help that you have a billionaire on the stage who essentially bought his way onto the stage and another billionaire who appears to be on the verge of buying his way onto the stage as well.
0: So you're talking Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg.
2: Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg. And uh, I think there is the the line, there were more billionaires than black people on the stage you know, <laughs> during the debates. And so where I think this will become really tricky is if the DNC rules allow Mike Bloomberg to get on to the next debate. And people were saying we essentially changed the rules to allow him uh, to get his foot in the door, while the firm thresholds did not allow Cory Booker to continue making his case for why he should be elected president. I think that ultimately, whoever gets the nomination, we are likely to see a person of color in the vice presidential slot. Uh, if it's Elizabeth Warren, it seems fairly reasonable to expect Julian Castro. Uh, but there are also the people who are coming up. You know, Kamala Harris comes up, Cory Booker comes up, um, Stacey Abrams still still comes up uh, as a person that people would expect to see getting tapped to be in the vice presidential slot, depending upon who wins the nomination.
0: Now, if Iowa told me anything, it told me that this is. The dissatisfaction about the catastrophic disorganization in Iowa is just a a precursor to what is, if not likely, then very deeply possible in November, which is that the election will not be considered legitimate. Right. If if Trump wins, the scale of suspicion and disappointment will be almost unspeakable. And Trump is almost certain to challenge any election unless he's crushed in that election. I don't see that happening.
2: Yeah, I think I've had this conversation with a few people uh, of late. uh, And, you know, one of the things that the impeachment did was send me and lots of other people, I imagine, uh, back to the Federalist Papers. And one of the things that comes across in reading them is the real fear that uh you know certainly Hamilton and Madison had about the possibility of political violence coming as a result of you know the system operating on bad faith in in some way shape or form uh and you know when you know notably Adam Schiff read from that letter from Hamilton to Washington and described the kind of character he was afraid of and it sounded very similar to the character that we have come to know Donald Trump to be so Would a person with his history and his particular psychology, can that person stand being humiliated on the biggest stage in the world by losing an election? Not likely. Uh, And uh, is he above saying that the election is illegitimate? I don't think so.
0: He was ready to say it last time. I mean, he was talking about it's being stolen and rigged and all the rest um, until he won, until that terrifying moment for him when he stood up and had to declare victory.
2: So what happens if he does that now with all the kind of institutional power that he now wields? I think the possibility of political violence in the country has increased significantly. And certainly uh, heading into the election is something that we can't dismiss as a real possibility.
0: Jelani, thanks so much. Thank you. Jelani Cobb is a professor at the Columbia Journalism School, and he's a staff writer at The New Yorker.